But what we're going to do is carry on with the, the themes of Jesus and the, and the seven verses in the Bible that explain the entire Bible to us. Then what we're going to do on the 16th, actually, I'm going to send out an email about this. It's a special event in solidarity with the Christians in Canada uh, who are being persecuted. Um, all the pastors in the series have been asked to preach the same text, actually. Uh, and then a whole bunch of other churches from other denominations are joining us. So that'll be on the 15th, I think it is. Um, and then after that, we'll get back to Samuel. But today what we're going to be talking about is the book of Micah. And we're going to be talking about verses in the book of Micah. But really, when you, the, the whole idea here is we're going to talk about the whole book of Micah and the, all the Gospels and the whole Bible. So our text is Micah chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. And before we begin, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Micah, for your prophets, Lord, um, for the clarity and um, the ease with which, Lord, declared your word. I, it seems so easy for them to know what to say and how to say it. And I know, Lord God, that it was because of your spirit working in them and through them uh, that we have such a clear picture of the way of life uh, that all humanity is supposed to live. We thank you for the ministry of Jesus that makes it even clearer. And we pray, Lord, that as we open your word now, that not only would we know the word, uh, the book itself better, but that we would know you better, we would know your son better, and that we would, Lord, be healed and comforted and convicted in exactly the way we need. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name and amen. Now, God's dealings with sinners is either well-deserved justice or undeserved grace. We should make t-shirts that say that. It's either well-deserved justice or undeserved grace. So what we've been considering is, is a bunch of events in, throughout Scripture in which the Lord's judgment is, is tempered with mercy. And what we find is that his judgment is always tempered with mercy. Always. People are, are always receiving from him things they do not deserve. And I would argue most, most of us do not actually <laughs> receive what we actually deserve. Now, in Micah's day, both Samaria and Judah deserved God's judgment. They deserved it. There's a long list of things that they were doing that were contrary to God's word, contrary to being the people of God, and that didn't prevent them from doing it. They did not deserve mercy. They did not deserve grace. Now, what they were doing is oppressing people. They were committing idolatry. They were full of corruption. The leadership in Israel was absolutely and thoroughly corrupt. Why would God come to them and give them a message of hope? Why would God come to them, of all people that generation, and explain anything about the Messiah? It, it, and I would argue that it's exactly because of their sin that he did. It's always sinners that God goes to and explains things. They lived out their wickedness right alongside their offer of sacrifices. They presumed upon the covenant promises and the temple in their midst. They thought, well, we've got this temple, and we've got the law, and we've got these sacrifices, so what could go wrong, right? As long as we keep all these externals in order, we keep the book, we keep some version of the law, we keep the sacrifices, we keep the temple going. If we keep all that going, then everything will be fine. We can do whatever we want. Now, this is not new. <laughs> this is something that Israel, uh, through all the generations of Israel, has perfected. This is what happened in Proverbs 7. If you, if you want to know what Israel is doing in the days of Micah, it's described in Proverbs chapter 7 when it describes a wayward and wily-hearted wife. It says in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 10 through 15, And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, 
She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. The woman is unfaithful. She's pursuing adultery after committing idolatry. Okay? She has paid her vows and offered sacrifices as if they were a kind of toll. Right? She's going on to the bridge of self, and before she does that, she pays the toll to get on there where she offers some sacrifices to God. There we go. I did my religious duties. Now I'm going to go and be a whore. And this is what we are like. This is what Israel is always like. Right? We go over here and we pay the toll. Right? We, we, first day of the week, we go to church, we pay the toll. Why? So often so that we can go and live and do whatever we want, whatever way we want to do it. This is Israel, a wily-hearted whore pretending to be very religious. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said in, uh, about his conversion that he was a converted pagan living amongst apostate Puritans. <laughs> and he, he, was, he always found it a struggle because he came into the Christian faith from far outside of it in a galaxy far, far away. And he was shocked to find this puritanical, heartless Christianity in England. And, and, I, and I mean, why not any generation, right? This is what most converted pagans find. This is just how Israel is described back in Ezekiel 16, right? This wily-hearted woman. This is how Israel is described. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street, making your lofty place in every square, yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment, adulterous wife who received strangers instead of her husband. Israel has a long history, again, of this kind of behavior. If you go back to Exodus chapter 32, verses 5 through 6, we read this. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, the golden calf. He built an altar to the Lord before the golden calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall, we, shall, be, a feast, shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, they were not playing badminton, okay? They were not playing kub. The word play means to revel, to celebrate noisily, to engage in uproarious festivities, often indulging in drink and sexual activity, including orgies. That's what they got up to do after feasting to the Lord God. Israel sits down to a feast to the Lord before an altar to a false god and rises up to what? Please their flesh. Does that sound like the wily-hearted woman from Proverbs? Right? Just pay the toll. Pay the toll and you can do whatever you want. External rituals are often, are often fig leaves, mere fig leaves, that Israel thinks covers her shameful nakedness of the soul. That is always what we think we're doing. Right? If we just patch on a few externals, then the nakedness of our soul will not be seen. In his great grace, God sent the prophet Micah to disrobe the false self-image and expose the wickedness and the shamefulness of Israel. To warn them of well-deserved judgment and call them to repentance by pursuing undeserved grace. You guys want more music? Is that what you want over here? (laughs) 
God always sends a prophet. And what a prophet is always supposed to do is to say the emperor has no clothes. That's always what a prophet's job is. They're not really clothed in righteousness. You are not really clothed in righteousness because you're, do, you're going about it all wrong. If, if you want to be clothed in righteousness, there is a way to do it. But you, Israel, are not doing it the right way. That is the job of a prophet, to expose, to show the shamefulness and the wickedness of the souls of the people of God, to warn them of well-deserved judgment and call them to repentance, to pursue undeserved grace. Micah prophesied of the coming judgment when God would abandon Israel for a time to the invading enemies of Assyria and Babylon who would trample their cities and carry their people off to exile. This is what he's telling them is coming. Micah is identified by his hometown, implying that he is an outsider to Jerusalem. He's not a man from the university. He's he's a man like Jesus who comes from the outside and stands in judgment of of the cultural center of Israel. He points and says, listen, you people have got it all wrong. They're like, who is this hick? (laughs) Who's this hick who's come from out of town to tell us, a bunch of university PhDs, what virus is? Right? Who is this guy to come and tell us what the doctrines of the Christian faith are? Doesn't he know I have two PhDs in philosophy and literature? And and this is always what happens. This is what happened in Jesus' day. They, They thought that Jesus and his disciples were a bunch of uneducated hicks. And it's fascinating to me that this is a theme throughout Scripture. The people who ought to know better rarely do. <laughs> and, it, and it takes some person from some outside source that, that comes from outside the cultural center to tell everybody that they've got it wrong, that the emperor, in fact, has no clothes on. Micah is identified as being an outsider. Prophesying in the same period with Isaiah, he helped shape Israel's character and policies. Micah's inspired preaching against injustice eventually brought Hezekiah to repentance. That's a story that you can find in the book of Jeremiah. His preaching had an effect on the heart of the king. Micah preached during the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, some of the worst and most troubled kings in Israel's history, a time of Assyrian expansion and dominance when when things were not looking good for Israel. And he came along and told them why. He he didn't say peace, peace, where there was no peace. Micah came along and said, yes, it's bad, and here's why. You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. That's why it's bad. The northern kingdom of Israel was gradually overrun by the Assyrians, the capital of Samaria falling in the year 722 B.C. Within Israel and Judah during this time, a shocking contrast between the extremely rich and the oppressed poor developed due to the exploitation of Israel's middle class by greedy landholders. See, they have this whole thing. Everybody is supposed to have a piece of the promised land. Everybody. And, and, right? and if you fall on hard times and you have to sell your piece, eventually, in the year of Jubilee, everybody's supposed to get their piece back. Right? And, and you have a Sabbath because what you want is that for, for people not to labor day in and day out, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. And what Israel was doing is that power was increasingly being uh, grabbed onto, filtered into a select group of hands. And, and the people who were supposed to know better, who were supposed to be generous like their God, were actually, in fact, getting richer and fatter and oppressing the people of God. It wasn't the Assyrians who oppressed them. The Assyrians came and delivered, right? They were oppressors who delivered Israel from other oppressors, which was Israel itself. The oppressors were supported these outside ones, by Israel's corrupt political and religious leaders. All these people knew what was going on in Israel because the corrupt leaders were in bed with them. Oh, yeah, come and check out the temple. 
right? This is always fascinating to me. How many times in First and Second Kings they're like, oh, yeah, look at how all this splendor. And then like a generation later, people come and steal all that splendor. So the corrupt leaders were, were um, working with the corrupt pagan leaders, and this is why they had this relationship with them. Micah catalogs specific sins of both the northern and southern kingdoms and, and includes idolatry, the seizure of property, the failure of civil leadership and religious leadership, and the prophetic leadership, the belief that personal sacrifice satisfies divine justice and corrupt business practices and violence. It's, it does not matter what we do if we offer a lamb at the end, right? I mean, God, he, just, he wants his peace like everybody else. I've got to pay the magistrate 10%. I've got to pay God 10%. And then, then he looks the other way. Right? They thought their God was like the corrupt leaders in Israel. If you can buy off people with a bribe, you can buy off God with a bribe. And that's what they came to understand the sacrifices to mean. This is the problem in Israel. So God raises up Assyria as his rod, as, according to Isaiah chapter 10, and he beats his kid. <laughs> he smacks some sense into him. He tries to drive the foolishness out of their heart with the rod of Assyria, and it doesn't work. It does not work. Yahweh prosecutes both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel with the Assyrian and Babylonian instruments as divine sentence. Now, the theme of Micah is this judgment, this well-deserved judgment, and yet undeserved grace. That's what the whole, it's, a, it's the gospel according to Micah. Here's all the stuff that you do deserve, and yet here are all the great things that I'm promising to do for you and to you. The Lord, the judge who scatters his people for their transgressions and sins, is also the great shepherd king who in covenant faithfulness gathers, protects, forgives, renews. That is what the shepherd king in Micah is going to do. Micah writes to bring God's lawsuit against his own people, his writ of divorce, as I've referenced in other sermons, reminding her of what Yahweh has done for Israel, what he expects of them, and what will continue to happen to them if they are wayward. And he also, in the end, tells them how he will restore them. He doesn't say, this is what you're going to do to restore yourself. He says, this is what you deserve, and I'm going to keep doing it until you cry out to me. But in the end, I'm going to come save you anyway. That's the message of Micah. In the face of this, there's Israel, repeatedly getting whacked with the Assyrian stick. And and, and things are getting tough for them. Right? It's not the outlook, right? The NASDAQ isn't doing as good. Right? Their college degree isn't worth as much as it used to be. They want somebody to forgive their college loans, give them free housing. Right? Things are looking bad. And what they do is, is, is in my, my estimation, absurd. And yet it's what we always do, right? Uh, how many of you guys watch um, you know, the movie with George Bailey? The George Bailey movie, what is it? Uh, Wonderful Life, yeah? Classic. So here is Israel in the bar with George Bailey, a little drunk, crying out to God. I'm not a praying man usually, but if you would hear me just this one time, you tell me what I can do for you, and here's what I need you to do for me. This is the George Bailey moment in the bar here. Micah chapter 6, verse 6 through 7. What, with, what, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What? (laughs) What? What? What do you... What? 
God's just this angry bully who's going to be appeased with rivers of oil? Who do you think you're talking to? Who are you talking to? The people ask what they should bring to the Lord to buy him off. As if Yahweh is unjust, just another corrupt ruler. They correctly recognize that he is the God on high. They say to him, Lord, Lord. But as Jesus teaches us, lots of people who say, Lord, Lord, he doesn't know them. They come to him and they say, exalted God. How can we buy you off? And isn't that incongruous? Isn't that demonstrate that they actually don't know who they're talking to? They, they have the right words, but they've forgotten who the person is. They make some very snarky suggestions. Oh, okay, you're unhappy with us? Well, how about we try a few things? Shall, shall we bring burnt offerings? They think ritual alone is a solution when it is only part of the problem. No mere ceremony is ever sufficient. False worshipers think God's favor like theirs can be bought and earned. Right? They, they, they think God is the kind of person where they just need to know his love language. If I just knew his love language... I would do whatever he needed, and then he would be in love with me. (laughs) They want to offer everything but what the Lord actually wants. They want to offer everything except what the Lord actually wants. What the Lord actually wants is the thing they don't want to give him. And, And this is what's wrong with God's people always. What he really wants from us, the one thing he really wants, is the one thing we don't want to give him. And that is our heart. And that is why he says, I will have to do it for you. Because we won't give it to him. It's all he wants. And we're like, no, 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 no. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hands off the merchandise. Right? How about some more lambs? Right? I got some kids. You want one of them? Right? I've read Genesis. I know. That's what you wanted from Abraham, right? Sacrifice one of these kids. I'll I'll do it. Offerings are no substitute for obedience to God's will. Offerings are no substitute for a contrite heart. Offerings are no substitute for that, that will, that center, that inner man. That is what God wants. The burnt offering was wholly consumed. Okay, and this, this is what, let me just explain what offerings are supposed to represent. You take the animal, you lay your sins upon it, and then you burn all of it. Why? Because you're offering your entire self. You are the lamb. <coughs> So this external thing you're doing is supposed to represent what is actually going on inside of you. It's not disconnected from what is actually the reality in your own heart. And it's the same for us. When we come here and we sing and we come here and we take communion, we come here and we pray and we come here and we read and we come here and we do fellowship and we have community, the community life of the church, all of these things that we're doing externally are supposed to represent something that is going on inside of us that we are wholly the Lord's, that we are completely his, that if, if, if you c- could see with spiritual eyes, you would see a lamb here burning in its entirety, offered up to the Lord. That is what they do not understand. And they don't understand it because they don't understand who they're talking to. <laughs> they even go so far as to offer the firstborn children. And what's interesting here is this is actually what they were doing. This is not a joke. This is not just some metaphor that they're using. They're actually doing this. King Ahaz, the king, offers his son in sacrifice in 2 Kings 16. The Israelites are imitating the wicked pagans of the land. The Ammonites sacrifice their children to their god, Moloch. 
This happens in Leviticus. It happens in 1 Kings. The detestable practices spread to Phoenicia and Canaan, now to the Israelites themselves. Why? Because they didn't put the foreign gods of the people that lived there before them away. And so now they're worshiping those gods, and they're worshiping those gods the way they worship those gods. That's what happens. That's what happens, right? You can't flirt with Buddhism. You can't flirt with Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. You can't kind of dabble in it a little bit without it affecting the way you actually worship. Now, I'm not saying, (laughs) my poor Catholic and Eastern Orthodox brothers, there's a lot I'm not saying when I say that. But how do these things happen? How do good Christians go astray with all these externals, right? Like, how, how does a good Protestant who knows his Bible well end up having icons in his house? where he walks by them and he does these little signs and he treats them a certain way because they're venerated because of what they're, because they're attaching the person with the image that they see. They don't know who they're talking about, right? God doesn't live on a plaque on your wall. He doesn't. He lives in your heart. That's, that's where he wants to live. If you are not careful, if you're not putting away the foreign gods, the people who, in, who live in the land that you are now inherited from the Lord, you will end up worshiping those gods the same way that they were worshiping them. And, and if, right? Abortion is not just this sudden thing that appeared. If, it was here already. Before all us whiteies got here, it was already a practice here. Okay? Before we came from Northern Europe, because that's, of course, the only place we all came from, Northern Europe, the practices were already here, and now we're doing them. We're aborting babies to, just to Moloch, just like the, the people were doing it to the gods before we came here. Now, children, child sacrifice is, is, is one of those things where, like, once you enter into that, like, the idolatry is, has gone pretty much as far as it's going to go. It's like high-octane idolatry. Offering children, homosexuality, these are the things that once you engage in these things, God has let you go. He's just like, hey... Right? Let that, like, put gas in that sin engine and see how far you can get. It's something that they know that God has condemned. Jeremiah condemns it in chapter 7, 19, and 32 of his book. They talk about it in Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 18. This is something that if they knew the word of God, if they knew God himself, they wouldn't be doing it. And, And they are offering it to God as if God wants it. Right? Do they know who they're talking to? Do they know what kind of God he is? Do they know what he requires of them? No, but they're, and they're so confused. Well, is this what you want? You seem like an angry dude. Is that, you want blood? Is that what you want? I'll give you blood. I got kids. Hypocritical Israel inquires how God is to be pacified, as if they are concerned about simply performing duties. They're not asking what's wrong. What's wrong with me? And they're saying, what, what's wrong with you? What do you need? Well, he doesn't need anything from them. That's not how the relationship is supposed to work. They've got their eyes on what they think are his problems. They're not asking. They don't have their eyes on what, what, what might be their problems. By convoluted windings, windings and turnings of externals, Israel never wishes to come to the thing they most desperately need, which is God himself. Right? They're not asking anything of him. They want to know what they can do to get him to calm down. Right? Just calm down, dude. <laughs> right? You're the god of, his, of Assyria. Get Assyria to calm. Just calm down. Peace. And they don't want to deal with what's really going on. 
Now, John Calvin states on this verse, it is because they are willfully blind at midday, for the doctrine of the law ought to have been to them as a lamp to direct their steps, but they smother this light, yea, they do what they can wholly to do to extinguish it. Right? It's not that they just smother it, they're attempting to extinguish the light that God is trying to lead them by. They ask, as though perplexed, how can we pacify you? How can we get you just to calm down? Right? How do, what, what do we need to do to make all the bad things that are happening to us stop? Hypocrites are always fraudsters. They always abuse the command of God. They always adulterate the sacrifices. They always adulterate communion. We always adulterate the word of God. We always adulterate preaching, singing, community life, all of it. We make it about that stuff. We make it about, like, you know what? Right? You know, God's unhappy with me. You know what I probably need to do is some service. That's probably what I need to do. I should give some money away. I should have some people over. And then God will be happy with me again. Now, I know none of us have ever thought that, right? I go through this like 15 times a week. Man, things are, ah, that could have gone better. I must have done something. God's angry now. I wonder what I can do. You know what I'll do? I'll read two more chapters of the Bible. Then we'll be happy. We're like George Bailey. Hey, God, you know, I'm not a preaching man, but if you're out there, this is what I need you to do for me, and I'll do whatever you want to get it. It's as if they have received specific directions and then rested quietly, never moving a foot. Right? And if you have teenage sons, you know exactly what this looks like. Hey, guys, do this. They're like, cool, do it, we'll do it. Then you come back 10 minutes later, and they're still sitting where they were sitting, and they're like, oh, well, we're just turning the Xbox off. We're saving it. We're saving the game. This is one I got recently. I'm like, it takes 20 minutes to save a game. I don't think so. Right? And, and we, we, we can mock teenagers all day long because it's easy. But how about, right? Grown-ups never do this kind of thing. Right? We, never, right? we never read the word of God and see what he wants us to do, get the direction and be like, wow, that, I, should, I should post this on Facebook so everybody else should do it. Right? <laughs> This is uh, like an urge that I, I, again, find myself. People are like, oh, I love the verses you put on Facebook. It's like, I was almost convicted by that. But I diverted the conviction to everyone else by posting it on Facebook, right? So now you guys read it and you be convicted. God wants to give me direction, but I don't want to move. I don't want to do anything, right? I, all I want to know is what I can do to just get him to calm down. Israel is trifling with God. That is what she is doing. They thought that it would be... It would, um, they thought that it would satisfy his justice if they performed some, 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 some sort of outward r- rituals. When the prophets of God repudiate sacrifices, what they are repudiating are the abuse of sacrifices. This is something I just want to be clear about. The problem isn't the sacrifices themselves. It's the fact that they don't understand what they're supposed to do with them. The sacrifices are a tool. They, they are a self-expression of what, something that's supposed to be going on internally. And, and what, is, what happens then is the prophets come along and trash the sacrifices, and so some of us think, well, then forget the sacrifices. Right? God doesn't really want us to do communion every week. God doesn't really want us to baptize in the triune name. Like, he doesn't, like, right? Let's calm down. He's not into ritual. Okay? He doesn't care how you dress when you come to church. He doesn't care the kind of songs you sing. He doesn't care that if you use the New Living Translation. We think he doesn't care about this stuff. That's like the opposite ditch that we drive the car into. But the point always is that he wants us to get the sacrifices right. He doesn't want to just chuck them. Right? He really wants you to be hospitable. 
right? Not just when it's convenient and not as some way to buy them off. This is clearly taught in Scripture. 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel said, has the Lord, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. One thing is better than the other. He's not saying one thing matters and one thing doesn't. He's saying one is better. One is actually the thing I'm looking for. When you burn the fat and calf, what you're demonstrating to me is that your heart belongs to me. So when your heart doesn't belong to me and then you do it, there is a serious problem in the process. Isaiah 66.3. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and they're sold delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Right? The problem isn't that they offered sacrifices. The problem is that their hearts were far from God while their lips and their hands were near him. And he doesn't want part of you. He doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. He wants all of you. He wants the thing you don't want to give him. What the Lord really wants most of all was not, is not offerings themselves, but what they represent, the heart of the offerer. They would offer everything, even what God forbade, except what he actually asked for, which they did not want to give him, and that is their heart. Now, the Lord, through Micah, reminds Israel, right? What, what are you asking me? Why are you asking me this question about offering your kids? How about, let's go back. And let me tell you again, through the prophet Micah, what it is I actually want. And in Micah 6, verse 8, this is the answer that God gives their stupid question. He has told you, O man, what is good. He's told you. Why are you asking this question? He already told you. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Three things that do not involve a physical sacrifice. Right? There's no lambs in that list. There's no blood in that list. These are all issues of the heart. These are issues right, of the kind of person you are. Do you do justice? Do you love kindness? Do you walk humbly with your God? The Lord God does not desire ritual sacrifices divorced from a reformed life. This is, this is something we have to get straight. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Jeremiah 7, 5 through 7. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, you, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. What does he want? Does he want something that you offer once a day? Does he want something you offer once a week? Or does he want a way of life? That's really what we're asking. He wants a... Does he want what? A way of life. Something that, include, that, that starts in your heart and works itself out into everything that you touch, everything that you do, everything that you are. What is good? 
Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 to 13. And now, O Israel, what does the, the Lord your God ask you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. You love God? Prove it. That's what he's saying. Prove it. Oh, okay. Um, well, if you just get a lamb in here, then I'll prove it. No. No, no, no. Because long after you slaughter the lamb and burn the lamb, now what I want to see is how you're going to go and you're going to go walk away. What are you going to do next? And then after you do that, what do you, then what are you going to do? And God is in heaven just looking at us saying, okay, what's next? What are you going to do now? How about now? How about now? How about this person? What are you, how are you going to treat this person? Oh, here's another person, and they just wronged you. How are you going to treat that person? Oh, here's a person that you heard about that you don't even know. How are you going to talk about them? Right? Oh, here's your kid. Here's your husband. Here's your wife. Here's, here's some food. Here's some wine. What are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? And, and how many of you think that, that you're like, I'm, how about we just offer up one of our kids? All right, that sounds easier. If, if he really wants to show devotion, does he want some devotion? I'll show him some devotion. Or oh, you want that kind of devotion? Oh, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I, how about something a little easier? And this is always the problem. This is the problem. You're like, listen, that, what that requires is not just some external playing along. That requires like the deep in, inner person that I really am. And that's the thing we don't want to give up. And that's the only thing he wants. The prophet of God reminds them what is good to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with the Lord, it is evident that in in the first two particulars, he is referring to the second table of the law. That is to do justice and to love mercy. To act justly is most important, for it does not mean merely to talk about justice or to get other people to act justly. It means to do the just thing yourself. And, And this is actually, this is why I hate this social justice movement. I hate it because it's so narrow, right? All we're worried about, say, are poor people, right? I I remember we talked a lot about doing social justice when I worked at the courthouse. You know what we were referring to? Poor minorities. I'm like, well, what about widows? What about orphans, right? What what about in the courtroom, right, the guy who ran past the the stop sign on the bus and hit another car? Like, what about that guy in the car? Well, it was a Mercedes. He can afford it. What? Like, oh, so you're not actually interested in justice, you're just interested in redistributing wealth. You're, just, you're, you're interested in social engineering. I think we ought to do the, the just thing. I think we ought to be merciful to those who don't deserve it. I think we ought to be gracious with those who don't deserve it, both financially and physically and spiritually and emotionally, uh, relationally, all of it. What I, why I actually hate the social justice movement is it's just too narrow-minded. It's just too simplistic. And, and, and we, <laughs> we don't do folk music anymore because we have professional people who play music on the radio. How many of us really think about doing justice when we have a justice system? Right? Like, I, me do justice? Isn't that the cop's job? Isn't that the court's job? Right? When you're driving down the road and somebody wants to get into your lane and they have the right of way, you're either doing justice or you're not. Your kid smacks your other kid and you're tired and you don't really want to get up off the couch. Are, you're denying your child justice by not disciplining the child who did the smacking. You have opportunities all the time to do the justice of God. Are you doing it? 
right? It's, <laughs> we want the big stro- like stroke. We want the big gesture. Like somebody go find me a homeless person and I'll give them some cheeseburgers. Right? It's, it's going back. It's like offering up the kid. It's way easier to do these grand gestures from time to time. It's a lot harder to give justice in, in individual situations to people we actually know on a daily basis. Well, you, I shouldn't lie about that person, but they're not here. They'll never know. And right now, it'll sound really funny. Right? If I tell that thing that I know that, I'm not, that he didn't want me to share, right now, it's, I'm going to look like I'm on the inside track. Now, are you doing justice or are you not doing justice? We're like, nah, forget all that. <laughs> I'm going to go down to the park, and I'm going to hand out burritos and blankets, which is actually the worst thing you can do for some people. You want them to be so cold they want to get off the street. That's actually what you want. So what I would do is go out there and take their – no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, no, I just, you, we'll cut that, right? Edit that out. Now, walk – is the key word here. Walk humbly with your God. What he's talking about is a way of life. In, in, in the Hebrew mind, when you say to walk this way, walk with that person, what they're talking about is a way of life. Okay? They're talking about a way of life, and that is what God is interested in, the hesed relationship. And if you remember that, hesed relationship, loyalty required and response to loyalty shown. God shows us favor. What is our responsibility? Then to show him favor to show others favor. God show, shows kindness to us. Our responsibility is in turn to show kindness and to show loyalty. Now, hypocrites place all holiness in external rights, but the Lord requires something very different. Hypocrites make a show of great zeal, great attentiveness to outward worship, going so far to demonstrate their lack of personal knowledge of God by offering him things that he, he finds truly repugnant. Now, what is it that you're trying to offer God to appease him that he doesn't want any part of? Right? Now, this gets tricky if you start to think about it. Okay? There are people who have an issue with alcohol. Some people ought to be done. Some people take the easy way out and say, listen, I'm going to do this grand gesture and never drink it again. Well, what you've actually done is shown that you you don't want to engage in a process of self-control. You don't actually want to learn something from this. Now, I'm going to go back. There are some people who should just put the bottle down and stop. They're done. But we want the grand gesture, right? Well, I'll just gouge out my eye. Well, I'll just cut off my hand. Isn't this what he meant? Right. What do I need to do to make him calm down? What's the grand gesture? What are you offering up to the Lord that he doesn't want any part of? Right? If you think about your own life, if you think about the way you and your spouse are sitting down and you're talking about the, the difficult circumstances you're in, and you're like, listen, if he would just X, we would X. If he just did this, we would do this. And, and how often are you actually doing this? How often are you addressing problems in your life and you want this grand gesture just to make the thing stop? Where the thing is going to, right, could actually be the means by which you demonstrate you really believe. That you actually have faith in the person who's, who's putting you through the difficult circumstance. What outrageous thing are you offering up? Your sons? Right? This is why public education, what is it? Well, it's, they just send the little bus around, and they pick the little brats up, and they take them away, and they, and they deal with them all day, and then they bring them home to me. You're like, but I really want them to have music programs and, and swimming lessons, and I want them to have all that stuff. I want them to have a full and rich life, and I also want to be able to sit at home during the day and not be bothered. 
Nobody ever says that. Right? What are you actually offering up to, your, to God, even including your own children? There's lots of ways that we do this by just whoring after the, the, whatever the modern culture spirit of the age is in order to have some peace and quiet. Now, in every age, God wants his people to respond to his love by doing justice, practicing loving kindness, and walking humbly with him, right? Which is in a whole way of life. This is genuine humanness. And by it, Israel is called to commend God's goodness to all mankind. What is our God like? Let me show you. By looking at my way of life. Right? And people will look at you and say, oh, this person is not corrupt. This person cannot be bought off. This person does justice in the small things, in the little things. They are loving and they are kind and they're merciful. They're compassionate people. Now, that's what God wants us to demonstrate to the world. That's what he wants the world to see. He wants to see a people who have a way of life that's different, a different kind of humanity than what the world has. Now, God has more than enough times demonstrated in his law what he approves of and what he requires. Right? Is anyone confused about what God wants? Anybody in here who's been a Christian any amount of time, we could sit down, and I actually think I can hand out some written tests you guys would do pretty well on. What is it that God really wants? Well, why is it then that they're asking him what he wants? Is it that they don't know? Is it really that? It might be. It might be that they just don't know. Is it, is it because they're willfully blind at midday, or they, nobody ever told them what light looked like? Each generation has those men who confuse and complicate the religion handed down to us from our fathers and make a career of confusing it. Either because their fathers failed to instruct them, or in some way they have corrupted the religion they have received by neglecting the fundamentals of the faith. Men seek some way, some Tower of Babel, some meritorious work, some religious right to pacify God's wrath, but God's will is not a mystery. It's not a mystery. The simplicity of Scripture, the simplicity of Scripture, the simplicity of God himself is very easy to understand. We want to overcomplicate it. Oh, Mike, it's so easy to understand. Is it okay? Fine, explain to me the two natures of Christ. Uh, okay, how about you explain to me how gravity works? Like, explain anything in this world. Nothing in this world on one level makes any sense. Right? I still, for the life of me, I'm 40 years old, I cannot figure out how a camera works. I don't understand. You have this thing, and you take a thing, and it makes a thing that looks like the actual thing. And then you put them in books. And, you, and, and like, I, I, I get cameras, and I'm staring at them, and it's like, I just don't, it doesn't make any sense to me how this thing actually works. And I had a friend one time, made like this whole PowerPoint presentation, 40 slides, explaining how cameras work. And at the end, I was like, so how do cameras work? Because this world is full of things that none of us, in one sense, actually understand at all. Can anyone explain to me why your spouse, right, your love for your spouse? Go ahead and explain it to me. Right? I used to write a lot of love poetry. Then I met Anne-Marie, and you know what I stopped doing? <laughs> Writing love poetry, because I couldn't. Like, well, now it's, def- it's like a, an actual thing. I can't describe it. I can't pull it apart. I can't tell you what it tastes like and smells like. I can't weigh it. Scripture is simple. You are not good, and God is. There is a God, and it's not you. Right? <laughs> there is a God, and it's not you. 
there is a God who, who wants certain things. And then you open the scriptures and you start reading them. And you're like, oh, this is actually pretty simple. I mean, he wants us to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with him. I feel Micah's pain here. This is the same pain Jesus has later when, when they come to him in the middle of the night and they're asking him questions about the new birth. And he says, how are you a leader in Israel and not know this? And what I find is this is, this is something as, as a Christian teacher I find all the time. Because sometimes people are explaining to me complicated situations and they're really uncertain. And I'm kind of like, how do you not know what to do right now? And, and that's not usually a question I just openly ask. But there are times in my mind I'm thinking, it's this, I don't understand. Go that way. Don't do that. Do that. Right? And, and what I like about counseling is it's really easy because you just let people talk long enough, and if they're tenderhearted and they want help, they'll eventually tell themselves what they're supposed to do. So I actually started doing this thing now to save me a lot of time. And I say, okay, here, this per- you just walked in the door and sat down, and you just explained everything that's going on, right? Here's this other person. Now, here's a mirror. Tell the person what they ought to do. And you know what they do nine times out of ten? Tell the person exactly what they ought to do, right? What we're supposed to do, what God wants is not complicated, we make it complicated. Through a false conceit, Israel makes a sort of pact with God that if they mortify themselves, if they toil in ceremonies, if they pour forth some portion of their money in select ways, deprive their flesh of support, they think that by these means they have fully performed their full duty. They offer up a part and call it everything. At some point, amid our doubts, Amid our self-reliance, amid difficult circumstances in, the, in, the, in dealing with the sins of other people, the problem is not that God's commandment is too complicated or too difficult, but that we do not, in our flesh, desire to read it, to comprehend it, or to obey it. The problem is not that we don't understand what it says. The problem is we don't want to do it. Right? What, <laughs> husbands, what does God require of you? Parents, what does he require of you? Right? I will sit down, and we'll take turns... Everybody come up here and you tell me, what, is a, what does God require of a husband to do? And yet, what, right? The problem isn't that we don't know. The problem is we don't want to do it. The problem is God says, hey, come. Come. Listen, give me your heart and I will give you righteousness. I'll give you peace. I'll give, I'll, I will put to death sin in you. I will free you from slavery. All you Just come and give me your heart. And you're like, well, <laughs> I don't know. How about I offer one of my kids? I got six. We can do this six times, and I got problems. Now, Micah's message is that you can't, you're not going to do it. So he's going to come, he's going to take your heart. He's going to just come and take it. Right? And all of you are here, right? Why? Not because, right, right in, in this weird way, we want to make it about the fact that we chose to be here as if it was a free choice. Now we're getting into some deep waters. Okay? But how do dead bodies get up and walk? How does a heart of stone become suddenly a heart of flesh, right? If I had a corpse laying on the ground here, don't worry, I'm not really going to do this. And I was like, here, eat a burrito. And I just threw a burrito down at it. I just hit the face and fall down on the ground and nothing. I'm like, come on, get up. Get up, get up, get up. Okay, now you put a human heart in there. You bring the body back to life. Here's a burrito. They'll eat the burrito. Get up and walk, they get up and walk. Something had to happen to the dead body to make it not a dead body anymore. 
Okay, and we like to think, right, that it was, what, 99% God and 1% us, so it was really us. No, it was God. He came, and he's like, listen, I want your hearts. And you're like, not going to do it. And, you're, and he's like, okay, and he takes it anyway. <laughs> this, this is what the poets talk about. This is Lewis talks about himself. He, he said, the person who he most did, he did not want to meet this person, and that was the person who came. He did not want to surrender this person, but the person gave him no choice, and the person was Jesus Christ. Right? I, it's not, I, we have got to be ravished by the living God before we become his bride. Right? It's like those old stories where you're like, no, no. Right? The pirate wants a kiss. And she's like, no, no, no. And then he just kisses her, and so she kisses him back. And then he hauls her off, marries her, and they live happily ever after. That's the story. Okay? We were taken against our will. And we were run here against our will. And while you're here, what God wants to do is, is give you the will to love him the way he loves you, to desire him the way he desires you, to have you as his own. Ultimately, the long-awaited shepherd king that Micah is talking about is Jesus Christ. That's who it is. He has delivered us. He has made peace between God and man. He has, is the one who has come and defeated our enemies. That's what we read about. What did he do? He tread down our enemies. He, he took us captive. He took us into heaven with him. He gives us gifts. He makes us his own. He now is our shepherd king. Stop trying to figure out some other way. The way is him. Right? We, we do not have to be like Israel in the day of Micah is thinking, what do we got to do to get him to calm down? It's not the question. It's where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Give me Jesus. Is Jesus here? Jesus is here. Sweet. Okay, cool. That's what we need. You know what I need in my heart? is Jesus. You know what I need in my words? Jesus. Do you know what my family needs in my home? Jesus. Do you know what they need in my work? Real bad? Jesus. You know what they need at the Starbucks? Right? You're waiting in line. You're sitting there. All those people. You know what they need? Jesus. <laughs> this is what the world needs. Right? We, he, he has told us what he wants. And you look at it and you say, there's no way that I can do this. And he says, okay, come, t- come here. Here, you're with me. I'm going to give you a hug. I'm going to love on you. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the strength to do this thing that I commanded you to do. And until we do that sur- surrender, until we get into this exchange, there's no hope for us. And unless we remember this exchange, there's no hope for us. Because what we will do is automatically go back to be like, gosh, you seem angry, dude. What can I do to just calm you down? What does God require? In Micah chapter 7, verse 5 through 9, it says this, Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother-in-law. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out uh, out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication because his vindication is your vindication. Now, what is he actually saying in this this set of verses. Wait, my enemy are all around me? My enemies are my wife and my, my husband and my kids and my coworkers and everyone around me? 
Well, this is what Jesus had to say. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 to 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, he's going right to the heart of the matter here. What are you holding on to? What is it that you've found something and you're like, okay. He's like pulling you up into heaven and you won't let go. And you're like, no, 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 no. I can't go without this. Right? Is it your spouse? Like, let's go right into it. Is it your own kids? Is it your parents? Like, the loyalty that matters more than any other loyalty in your life is him. You, right? That's what he wants, all of you. He, now, <laughs> this, <laughs> it's terrifying. Right? I am that person. He's yanking me by my toenails, and I'm just like, no, 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 no. I can't let go with this, this. And he's like, if you let go of it, not only will you get it back, but I will give, I will give you everything back. I, I, I'll take this one thing that you are abusing and using, right? Like these people want to sacrifice their own children. He says, give me all of your loyalty, and what I will give you is everything. And you're like, no, 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 no. You're looking at your little thing here. You're just like, this precious thing. I can't let it go. I can't leave it here. Something bad will happen to it. Who will take care of it? And what is it? Drunkenness? Porn? Right? What is the thing that you're holding on to? And, and it's like those little kids when they grab food. Have you ever tried to get food out of like a three-year-old's hand? It's like a vice grip. I can't open that hand for all, all the kingdoms in the world. And that's what God is doing. He's like, just pry, pry your hand open. Let it fall. And come with me. And when you come with me, what do you get? You get your wife back and your husband back and your kids back and your spouses back. Right? You, get, you get your parents back. You get your whole world back. You get him. You get everything. The problem is with our affections. The problem is what is it that we're holding on to? What is it that we love most of all? And if you think, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, listen, I can't do it. I tried what you're doing. I can't let it go. I want to encourage you in this fact. What you've done thus far is you've sat in the bar with George Bailey and you're begging God, begging God to tell you what you need to do other than what he's already told you. <laughs> you, you, have, you are looking for a way out. I used to say this, this uh, joke all the time. When I get somewhere where I'm really bored, my joke is I'm going to start digging a hole out of here. Right? I'm just, you're going to see me. It's going to be like those old cartoons. You're just going to see a shovel, and I'm going to start digging a hole out of this place, 10 feet down, 20 feet to the right, to get out of here. And what we are doing constantly is trying to dig uh, some way out of the situation that we're in, opposed to turning to God and giving him what he really wants. If you turn to him, there he is, you'll find, right? So you go to this intention, you're like, okay, now I'm going to do it. And you found that your heart's already in his hands. And he's like, thank you. This is what I wanted all along. Come with me now. And you go with him and you find out what? That the joys are more joyous. That the singing is louder and brighter and better. That love is pure and good and true. That righteousness is possible. That you can actually love unlovely people. That you can be merciful and gracious with people who do not deserve it because you know because you received it. 
Micah 5, 9, your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. All of them, all of those things that you're afraid are going to keep you from God. He's going to put them all to death. The same gospel that we receive is the one that Micah delivers. Right? Lay it down. Bring it to him. He will slay it. He will put it to death. Now, if you're sitting there and you're listening to this message, and you're thinking, I don't know who is sick, Mike. <laughs> I don't know who's sick, but you're describing a physician that is for sick people. I'm not a sick person, right? I, I drove here in my own car willingly. I have a Bible. I do all the things I'm supposed to do. Ask my wife. Ask my kids, right? Come, follow you, you don't think, you think I need a doctor? I'm perfectly healthy. If you're that person, right, th that is exactly the problem. For every one of us who know that we are desperately sick and are dying, he is the one who comes and delivers us. He's the great physician to everyone who is sick. The problem is most of us don't want to admit that we're sick. He's made it very clear in his word. Your heart is awful, and you have to get rid of it. And he will come and he will, he will take your heart and make it his own and transfer his righteousness for your unrighteousness, his love for your lack of love, your, his purity for your impurities. He will make this exchange. And, and what he wants is you, all of you, right? He, do, he doesn't want us just to come here and sing songs. He wants us to come here with hearts that are his and sing songs. Right? He doesn't just want you to have people over because others will notice and it looks good. He wants you to have a heart for people who are in need, who are sick, who need a, a word, who need a meal, who need to share life and share its joys and share its trials and tribulations. And when you have a heart like that, right, then your hospitality means something. He doesn't want you just to check boxes. He wants you to come and lie down. Right, right? Offer yourself entirely to him. The heart of the shepherd king is quite simple. What he wants from you is very clear. What you have to do is stop resisting it. What you have to do is stop looking for some other way, right? Stop trying to dig a tunnel out. This is what he wants. The Lord Jesus, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, who needs that message? Who wants a yoke that's light? Who wants rest? Who wants right, someone who's going to come alongside of you and lift the burden and carry it with you? If that's what you want, that's what he's here, and he's here to offer all of these things and give them to you. He's not joking around. But you have to come. And you have to lay yourself down. You have to let go of that thing that you're holding on to and come to him and receive him. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Micah and for Christ, Lord, our Savior, who came into the world to save sinners. And, Lord, we know this because we ourselves are sinners who have been saved. We pray, Lord God, that as we go into this week that we would lay down, Lord, all of those treacherous and horrible things that keep us from you, that we would not seek another way into heaven but Christ, that we would not seek another way of life but Christ, that we would not seek another Savior but Christ. In his name we pray, and amen.